You all can be seated. Wanted to mention a couple of things now that I'm more in my comfort zone and not going to do the awkward intro thing. Um, Matt does have some uh, CDs and t-shirts and things uh, that are available out in the foyer. He'll be out there afterwards if you want to chat with him or whatever. Uh, If you want to buy something, it helps to support him as well. Um, you can do that, or you can just go to your favorite music streaming service and just uh, put it on repeat and let it play for like a week and a half. Um, <clears throat> all right, so anyway. Hey, if you got your Bibles, go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 5. You know, I was thinking about this, because uh, you know, I, you guys that are with us normally know that I usually say, you know, if you got your Bibles, go ahead and open or scroll on your device. Um, I realized that I am, I think this is when I realized that I was really old, when I realized that I think I can flip to the passage quicker in my paper Bible than I can find it on any of my digital devices. And I'm a digital device guy, okay? Uh, you guys see that every week. You know, and, and if you've been in the office, you definitely know that I like my screens, okay? And so, uh, but I just, that's how I knew I was kind of old because I grew up in that period of time where we had paper and then we went digital and I, I guess I'm in that transitional uh, generation or something. Anyway, we're going to be in Matthew 5, and we're going to be in verses 21 through 26. You know, Alexander the Great was one of the few men in history who seemed to deserve his descriptive title. You know, we have all these guys in, in, throughout history that have these, uh, these titles and may or may not actually deserve them, right? But Alexander the Great was one of the guys that he was given. He was energetic, he was versatile, he was intelligent. Although hatred was not generally part of his nature, several times in his life he was tragically defeated by anger. The story is told of one of these occasions when a dear friend of Alexander's a general in his army became intoxicated and began to ridicule the emperor in front of his men. Now, blinded by anger and quick as lightning, Alexander snatched a spear from the hand of a soldier and hurled it at his friend. Although he'd only intended to scare the drunken general, his aim was true and the spear took the life of his childhood friend. Now, as you might imagine, deep remorse followed his anger. Overcome with guilt, Alexander attempted to take his own life with the same spear, but he was stopped by his men. And for days he lay sick, calling for his friend and chiding himself as a murderer. Alexander the Great conquered many cities and vanquished many countries, but he'd failed miserably to control his own anger. And anger is what we're going to talk about this morning. It's the passage that we're going to look at deals with anger in the heart of men. You know, Will Rogers said, people who fly into a rage always make a bad landing. That's just dad jokey enough that I like it. We're continuing in our series, Greatest Sermon Ever, which is our journey through the Sermon on the Mount, through the book of Matthew in chapters 5 through 7. And if you missed any of those messages, most of them are available online. You can go to our podcast feed or audio, or you can go to our Facebook page and look at the video, or you can go to other sites. There's, it's all. Go to hopeofdixon.com. You can find out all the information you could possibly want and catch up on this. But today, what we're going to see is Jesus begins a section of teaching on what the righteousness 
that surpasses the scribes and Pharisees looks like. Because he had just, and we're going to get there in a minute, but he had just said, what we talked about last week, that, that in order for someone to be in the kingdom of heaven, their righteousness had to, had to surpass that of the religious leaders of the day. Now, Matthew, in writing about Jesus' interpretation of the law and, and his teaching of it, portrays Jesus, as some have suggested, as a new Moses, a new and better Moses, and a fulfillment of the Exodus. Now, we see this in many ways, this comparison in Matthew between Jesus and Moses, or Jesus as the new Moses. And if you look at Ma- in Matthew 2.15, it says, and, and remain there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. So Jesus is the son of God called out of Egypt. Now, if you remember that, that, this is from the Christmas story, or directly after it. Remember, Herod uh, was searching for Jesus because he wanted to have the boy killed, he, you know, and he tried to get the magi uh, or the wise men to, to, to try and tell him where uh, the child was, but they got on to the scheme and they went back a different way. And so he had all of the kids, to, all of the males, two years and younger, killed. And if you'll remember, God woke up Joseph and got him out of, to get the family out of town, right? He, he went to him in a dream and got him out of the town. And so they went to Egypt. And when it says, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, those of you who don't know, the exodus was the exodus of the Jewish people in the Old Testament from out of Egypt in, and, and to the promised land. So then Jesus passes through water in his baptism, just as Moses and the Israelites had passed through water. He's tested in the wilderness. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness as Moses was tested in the wilderness. He expounds the law of God in a mountainous region. So we have the Sermon on the Mount, right? We said, or in, or in the hills. And we have Moses who gets the law of God on the mountain. The idea here in all of this is that a new and greater Moses that knows that, that where the rubber meets the road in relationships is in the heart leading to the action. He begins this by dealing with anger and with reconciliation. Then he continues into other aspects of relationships that we're going to cover in the next few weeks. What he does is he addresses a command of the law of the Lord and then talks about what the intent, uh, what the heart response, what the intent or what's behind that. Because we remember Jesus fulfilled the law But this isn't just about obeying a bunch of commands. It's about the heart and the spirit of the law that was behind it. So what I'm going to do now is I want to pray, and then we're going to begin reading our focal passage in Matthew uh, 5, 21 through 26. But before we do that, let's pray and ask God to bless our our time in the Word this morning. Father God, as we come, we... God, I I don't know how many other people out there feel this, but I, I just feel unsettled. And God, I just, I pray you'd settle me. I pray you'd help me be settled, help me be clear in my communication. But God, most of all, I pray that you would uh, open our hearts to your word, that you would speak to us from your word, that we would understand the meaning, that we would understand how it applies to our lives. And that God, when there's parts that challenge us, parts that we have trouble dealing with or we, we have trouble understanding, God, that you would cause that not to make us to run away, but to dive deeper into you, Jesus. I pray we would... I pray we would believe you and trust you even when it's hard, even when we have to humble ourselves. We thank you for that sweet, sweet gift of the truth of your word. 
Bring us quickly to repentance in areas where we're sending Jesus. God, I pray this morning that this message would be, uh, it's for you, it's of you. I pray that uh, if there's anything that's just of me, you would clear that out. Uh, that I would decrease and you would increase. You'd be big here today, Jesus. In your name I pray, amen. Beginning in verse 21 of uh, Matthew chapter 5, it says this, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Anyway, a Christian philosopher named Dallas Willard said, actions do not emerge from nothing. They faithfully reveal what is in the heart. The heart is not a mystery at the level of ordinary human interactions. We discern one another quite well. In other words, it's not really a mystery why we do the things we do. We can look at someone and the things they do and understand what is in their heart because that's what comes out. So if you're taking notes, the first point I want to make about this is just this. Number one, God cares about your heart and not simply your outward behavior. God cares about what's inside and not simply what is happening on the outside. You know, in this passage, he, he begins by saying, you've heard that it was said to those of old, right? Now, he's not talking about the law itself, but the teaching of that law by the scribes and Pharisees, these Possible Jewish law had sanctions against uh, specific, uh, for example, we'll talk later, specific insults uh, that should not be heaved at people, right? Uh, And Jesus shows, though, that any verbal abuse makes one liable. And we're going to go on to that. But but he's speaking here in particular, in particular of the teaching of these religious leaders, now, I want to point back, because, because when we get to this, I, there's a lot of, when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, we have a tendency to just pick these pieces apart, like, oh, this part's about anger, this part's about, uh, about divorce, this part's about adultery, this part's about, the, you know, this is the Beatitudes, and, and we tend to separate those things out. And, and when we do that, and I did it for years, when we do that, we miss something in Scripture, though, because we miss this, uh, this narrative flow, this connection where the entire Word of God from Genesis to Revelation is working together to reveal Jesus and to show us Jesus. And so I want to skip back one verse to, to ch- verse 20, which is just what we talked about last week. It says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of, the, of heaven. Now, last week we talked about the scribes and the Pharisees, those religious leaders who wanted to make sure that all of the minute details were just so-so. They wanted to make sure they got, they tithed their cumin and their spices and, and all their stuff and their dill, and they had to make that right. But they neglected some of the more important or weightier matters of Scripture, like, I don't know, mercy, justice, kindness, love. 
But they made sure they had everything out here. And Jesus said that those who enter the kingdom of heaven have to possess a righteousness that exceeds that of these religious bean counters. Now, beginning in this passage, Jesus lays out the commands that are in the law, but also, as I said earlier, the deeper principle of intent that is behind them that the scribes and Pharisees missed altogether. See, it's real easy for people to say, well, this is the law, this is the rule, you do this and this and this, and you're good. What is more difficult is to catch what's behind that. The heart and soul, the heart and the spirit of the law that is behind the command. And the Pharisees, the scribes, they missed it altogether. The Bible's clear. We cannot gain righteousness or right standing with God or salvation. We cannot gain it on our own but it can only be given to us by Jesus Christ. And it is those who are humble in spirit and pure in heart that are the ones that have this righteousness. So we talked about with the Beatitudes. See how it's all, it's all connected. It's fundamentally different than the strict law rule following, excuse me, the strict law rule following of the religious elite of the day. So they wanted to do all the right things to earn God's favor without dealing what was in the real need of cleaning, our dirty souls. So I want to point out a couple of things about this and, and then move on, move on to the next sort of main, main area in this passage. The first one, though, is that God sees the inner person. A lot of times we think, and I have not yet figured out why we think we can do this, but we think we can hide what's going on inside from God. The God who created us, who put us together, who knitted us together in our mother's womb. And for some reason, we get these, whatever sin that we are holding on to, whether it be anger and hatred, as we're talking about today, or whether it be something else. And for some reason, we have decided that we can sort of hide that from God, or at least from other people, and go on with the outward appearance of religiosity. But God sees the inner person. He's not fooled by all of our religious activity. And today is 2021, and for the last several years, we have seen leader after leader within the Christian church, famous guys, guys with big churches, right, who write books and all this other stuff. Um, and, and, and it's not bad to be famous or write books. I'd love to write a book, okay? Uh, it, it, that's not bad. But we've seen that their inward character did not match the religious uh, outer actions, and it comes out, and they fall in a tremendous way, because they didn't get that they need to watch out for what God sees, which is the inner person, the inner character of a person. Remember, character is who you are when no one's watching. Not only does God see the inner person, though, God cares about the inner person. See, that's the thing. It's not that God is looking and just seeing it and being like, ah, you're awful, It's not just that. It's that he's seeing what's going on inside, but he cares about it. He cares about what your heart is like. He wants it to be a heart after him, a heart after his. And so I don't know if in the hiding we are trying to like, I'm going to keep this inside and I'm going to just act good enough on the outside and eventually I'll be good on the inside But that's not it, because God cares about the inner person. And the third thing is this. Jesus came to change the inner person. He didn't come primarily to change your outward actions. He cares more about who you are than what you do. 
Because Jesus knows, because he created us, that if the inside changes, if, what's, if all the junk is clean on the inside, then what flows out of the heart in word and actions is going to reflect the cleanness on the inside. If there's junk on the inside, you're going to get junk on the outside. And you, but, and you can try to pretty up the junk on the inside by making the outside look good. Look, if, if you've got a bathroom and you've just got a ton of black mold in it, uh, it's in the walls and it's, it's sunk into the... They had that, that, that like... Um, what was it, the Vietnamese mold that was real bad a few years ago? I was working in a mortgage company, and it was just, it was awful. It was everywhere. People had to, like, move out of their houses and stuff. If you've got that in your house, but you want to sell your house, so instead of having the mitigation come in and take care of it all, you just, you paint the door a really pretty color to the bathroom, and you maybe put in one of those, um, those bathtub inserts, you know, with the, the, the shower with the little things, you know, um, and if you, if you don't attach it right, you know, it, it, it thumps when you get into it. Anyway, um, not saying I know that from personal experience. Uh, but anyway, and you pretty it all up. You maybe hang a nice little picture over the spot where, you know, you got mad and punched the wall, right? And you walk into this thing and it looks, wow, that looks like Chip and Joanna Gaines have been in this place, okay? But underneath, it's poisonous, that's what it's like when we try to do all this religious activity out here and we don't deal with what's in here. We don't have Jesus deal with cleaning up what's inside. Eventually, the person that buys your house and moves into that house, they're going to get, start to get sick because there's poison in the walls. And if we don't deal with the sin and the evil and the wickedness in our heart, if Jesus doesn't deal with that, then eventually sick things are going to happen. This is the spirit behind the law. And there's something deep inside of us that's broken, and only the Lord can fix it. We are nothing without him. Look, I may sound like a broken record over the next few weeks because the, this theme is going to keep continually coming up in the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus changed the way we were to think about sin. It wasn't just mitigating the outside with a bunch of rules, but it was dealing with where that sin came from. Our hearts. It wasn't actions, but attitudes and deep into the heart. We're in danger of thinking of sin as something we do. I'm going to say it again. We're in danger of thinking of sin only as something we do. Sin is not simply action that we commit. It's a sickness, a bondage, a ruler over us prior to Christ's intervention in our lives. It's a nature, a terminal illness upon humanity. And without the intervention of the perfect sacrifice, we all face the wrath of God for it. Now, we're going to come back to that. But I want to move forward with our kind of our second main point this morning, and that's this, human anger and a greater standard of righteousness. Because in this passage... Jesus is talking about anger, right? He's talking about anger. That if you're angry with your brother, you're liable to judgment. Hmm. You know, as I think about anger, the Bible actually has a lot to say about anger. It's interesting. There's a lot of topics 
that we talk about, we think about, and we're like, well, I don't think the Bible says that much about that, or, you know, whatever it is. Anger would not be one of those things, because the Bible actually has a lot to say about anger. In Proverbs 14, 29, and we're going to buzz through these pretty quick, so you might want to write them down. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Well, that reminds me of, of that story of Alexander the Great I told at the beginning, right? You exalt folly if you're quick to anger. I'm sure this has never happened to any of you, but you got angry with someone and you did something really stupid. All right? Your pastor punched someone out in a church building once because I was angry at the guy. Now, I was a teenager, okay? So just, it wasn't yesterday, okay? <laughs> just so everybody knows, I have to clarify that. It wasn't yesterday. I was a teenager. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Boy, a soft word. Man, you learn this work in retail um, during the Christmas season, right? Some of you are nodding your heads because you've been there. You're like, absolutely. Somebody comes in, they're so angry, and you're just very, very uh, soft and kind to them. Because they're expecting you to be, you know, the reason why they're upset. And, it, you know, you're, typically you're not. Interesting. Proverbs twenty two twenty four: Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man. Proverbs twenty nine eleven: A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. There's more. Ecclesiastes 7, 9. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Ouch. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. It lodges there. It gets stuck there. And the the fool is too foolish to not let it get stuck there, to not let it get lodged there. It's like... uh, it's like a dog that gets, you know, stuck in a trap and he's trying to get it out and then in doing so he gets the other leg stuck in the trap, you know. Ephesians 4, 26 through 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. I don't know if you think about your anger that way, but when we become angry quickly... And we are led into folly, or it gets lodged in our heart easily. We give opportunity, or a foothold, you might say, right, uh, to uh, the enemy. And, and by the enemy, I mean the devil. I don't mean the, the guy or the gal you're mad at. But you give an opportunity. How many of us, if asked the question, hey, would you like to give an opportunity to the devil today? Nobody in here would say yes. Okay? No, but I always, whenever I'm in a conversation with anybody, they're like, well, let me play devil's advocate for a minute. I always want to say, why do you want to be on his side? I just, I hate that expression because I just, it's just, I realize it's just an expression. Yes, I get it. But why would we even want to be associated with that? Colossians 3.8. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And James 1, 19 through 21, know this, my beloved brothers, let everyone, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, 
For the, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive the meekness, the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. The anger of man doesn't, what? The anger of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God. No matter how angry you get, no matter how right you think you are to be angry, your anger is not going to produce the righteousness of God in you or in them. I love the saying, holding a grudge is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. So what does this have to do with what Jesus says about anger here and about murder? Well, not just committing murder, this is the point, not just killing someone is an insufficient standard to judge by or to measure by, right? Just the fact that, you know, when we look at this, you've heard it that was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And it goes on. Not murdering someone is not a good standard to live by, to measure up. It's got to go deeper than that. If we just said, man, man, brother, I heard you, you were angry at that guy and you cussed him and you punched him and you, you took all his money and you did all this stuff to him. I'm being as out there with examples as I can here, guys. Um, and your response is, yeah, but I'm okay because I didn't kill him. That's insufficient. But even if all that other stuff hadn't happened, that's also an insufficient standard. Well, but I didn't hit him. Well, that's also insufficient because you're not dealing with what's going on on the inside. Hatred and anger are heart-level companions to the outward action of murder. So what, it, what it's saying is, before you ever get to the point of murder, you back that up and there's a heart at that has to come from somewhere. There has to be a heart, a heart attitude, an anger, a hatred, where all of those hateful actions flow from. And if you don't deal with it at the source, if Jesus doesn't deal with it at the source, then anything else is going to be that insufficient standard to measure that by. Just not killing someone is not enough. You have to also not hate them. I'm really sorry if I accidentally point over here at anyone with that and talk about not killing people. I really don't mean anyone in this section. It's just where my hand goes. The things in our hearts lead to our words and actions. I used to ask my students, some of you know I was a youth pastor for 15 years. Uh, Matt told a great story about that earlier. Um, <laughs> I used to ask my students this. Okay, so y- you want to know, are you, are, you living, are you living for Christ? You know, what's, has Christ really got your heart? What's that? When the pressure is on, what comes out? And so what I would say to them is I would say, when you squeeze an orange, what comes out? So what, when, you squeeze, uh, when you squeeze an orange, what comes out? Orange juice. Yeah. I heard some people. 
with, they're not sure if they should answer out loud or not. When you squeeze an orange, orange juice comes out. When you squeeze a Christian, what comes out? Now, wait, wait for it, because remember, these are teenagers. Christian juice. That's not the right answer. Jesus is, should be what comes out. When the pressure is on, when you're being squeezed, the response should be that attitude of Christ, that character of Christ, that heart of Christ coming out of a clean and pure, righteous heart. Your hatred and your anger shows where your heart is. Your actions show what is in your heart, and yet we think we can hold on to our sin without anyone knowing or caring. And that's not the way it works. Number three here. Jesus demands a righteousness that's deeper than skin level or mere action. And this is really connected with what we talked about last week. In verse 22, we see Jesus dropping down his argument step by step. And as he does it, it gets more and more intense. Matthew 5.22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, I just want to tell you, uh, I've been in church a long time, and when I was younger, and even not so much younger, this passage really bothered me because I didn't know exactly what to do with it. Right? And, and when you just take the one verse out, yeah, it's like, oh, oh, okay. Um, so if you call someone a fool, you're liable to hell. Oh, okay. Well, that's, that seems serious, right? The Greek word that's translated you fool is actually uh, moros, and uh, here it could be translated like it sounds, moron, right? Moron. Now, the use of this word back then to someone, uh, it, it was, the use of that word was liable to the hell of fire. Now, this seems extreme. It seemed extreme to me. That's a word that gets used all the time. In fact, I once, um, in college, I was in a repertory theater uh, troupe, and we traveled around performing uh, drama sketches at churches and youth events and different things, and we stayed with these older people We'd stay in host homes, and there was one family we stayed with in, I believe it was Kirksville, Missouri, and it was an older couple, and their dog's name was Fool. Come here, Fool. What does that sound? That's just Fool, right? I don't know if they ever read this passage. Anyway, um, I'm just kidding. This always seemed extreme to me, but, but uh, scholar Charles Quarles, uh, he explains the severity of this in this way. The use of moros in Matthew's gospel shows that it is far more severe than merely calling someone an idiot. Okay, well, that's good to know. Let's, let's go on and see what else he says. The word is used in Matthew 7, 26, 23, 17, and 25, 2 through 3, and 8 in a way to describe those who do not truly belong to the kingdom. So calling a brother a moron was essentially calling him unregenerate and unsaved and consigning him to hell. If you were really worried about your brother being a moron in that sense, right? Being someone who was unregenerate, unsaved, and on their way to hell, and you're basically consigning him there. 
if you really thought that about him, first thing is, well, why wouldn't you want to try to see him uh, reconciled to God first? But you can see this is more severe than just saying, ah, you dummy. Right? It's, it, it is different. Jesus spoke about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. I know that's not like our favorite subject to talk about usually in church. Right? Because it's super unpleasant. But we have to talk about hell and the wrath of God in order to understand the, the price that our sins, um, for our sins that had to be covered. His words seem strong and extreme to us, and I want to caution us to not try to water them down or take away from them to make us feel better. We need to just sit with Jesus' words a bit. Jesus wants to shock us into this new understanding of what life in the kingdom looks like. He uses this language to make things clearly different than what the world's sinful standards are. You know, he's concerned more about your heart condition than coddling you and making you feel good. And Jesus was consistent with this in his ministry. Look what he says in Mark seven twenty through 23. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, Theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Remember the scribes, the Pharisees, they believed that the things that defiled you was all the stuff on the outside. You know, I touched a dead animal or I worked on the Sabbath or I did that. And Jesus says, no, it's, it's what's in here. That's the problem. And that other stuff is just symptomatic of what's on the inside. Now this brings us to verses 23 through 26 in our main passage. Where Jesus illustrates his teaching in a couple of different scenarios. Now I want to point out we're a couple of thousand years removed from the historical context that these examples were given into. So it's hard to pin down uh, you know, a one-to-one correspondence in these situations from, you know, from back then to what it looks like now. But there are some basic principles that are at work that transcend cultures and history and are true for everyone in all times and under all circumstances. So let's take a look at what Jesus was getting at. And let's begin in verses 23 and 24. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now, this first illustration that Jesus gives of this has to do with our offering, our, or, our offering excuse me, or financial giving to the Lord as an act of worship. When we come together to worship God, giving is one of the components of that. I know when people say, hey, we're going to worship, most people, when they say that, they're simply talking about the music. How was church? Oh, the worship was great. And most people, when they, most people, when they say that, they're talking about the music. But worship is more than simply music. It's an attitude of the heart. It's worship to listen to the word proclaimed. It's an act of worship to pray together, to give an offering, and yes, to sing. That's a whole other sermon on what worship is, but, but just to say that even bringing your offering is an act of worship. 
And let's move on. So this is saying that if you're going to give your offering and you remember that someone has something against you, you should leave your offering, leave your gift, go be reconciled with your brother, and then come back and give your offering. This thing that someone has against you here, because I know what I do, we think, well, someone's got something against me. And we in our minds go through and like, well, you know, that's not legit. That's not really, that, I don't need to worry about that because that's not what Jesus is talking about. This thing someone has against you is something that's, it's not unreasonable. It's not an irrational grudge, but it's something that's a true and legitimate grievance. And in this case, you genuinely did something that hurt or wronged your brother or sister, even in blundering. And the Lord expects us, his children, the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, expects us to reconcile relationships that have friction. And this is how we can worship God with integrity, with a clear conscience, and having right relationships with brothers and sisters. Don Carson says, forget the worship service and be reconciled to your brother and only then worship God. Men love to substitute ceremony for integrity, purity, and love, but Jesus will have none of it. Jesus has no interest in you hating your brother or your brother ha- knowing that your brother has something against you and you coming and giving him your offering and worshiping him without, and in fact, I would say, in resistance, in defiance of being reconciled to your brother. Your relationship with God is most important, is more important. But you cannot, you cannot come before God with a clear conscience knowing that your brother has something against you. So we're to go. We're to be the agents at act, that act in reconciliation. God's more concerned with the heart of the person who gives than he is with the outward action and behavior of giving. Wow, that sounds like what we've said for the last 25, 30 minutes, right? Some of you are looking at your watches. It's been longer than that, Pastor. A few verses ago in the Beatitudes, Jesus told us that citizens of the kingdom are peacemakers. So go make peace. The second situation Jesus gives here, it's in verses 25 and 26. He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. This one sounds familiar, sounds similar, but instead of the word brother, this offense deals with what is called the, uh, an accuser. So you've got someone, an accuser. And whatever's gone on here is, has begun to involve the courts like in a civil case. Paul, later in 1 Corinthians 6, would address a matter in much the same way as Jesus. So we have, you know, we have continuity there. There's a scriptural base layer that helps us understand what Jesus is saying. Kind of undergirds the whole thing. And it's Romans twelve eighteen. Romans 12, 18, which says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live, at pe- leave, live peaceably with all. So far as it depends on you. Do you understand what that means? You are responsible for what other people hold against you when it's real. 
real sin or folly on our part, your responsibility is to pursue reconciliation. We also have to live with the pain and the hurt if that reconciliation fails to succeed. You're not responsible to somehow force or make the reconciliation happen, but to pursue it. You're to take the initiative to restore the relationship. I have relationships in my life that have been torn. I think of one in particular. And I've done everything that I can to try to restore the relationship, and every opportunity has basically been rebuffed. And I had to come to terms with this. <laughs> have I done what God wants me? Have I, have I gone to my brother? Have I gone quickly to the brother or quickly to the accuser? Because our responsibility is not that it succeeds. God is the one that makes it succeed or not, right? It, that's up to him dealing with that person's heart. He's dealing with, excuse me, with your heart and with their heart. You're responsible to pursue reconciliation. Take the initiative to restore the relationship. Let me suggest something to you that it might not be easy to hear or think about. Um, If you've been a part of this church for the last few years, um, we've been through some trauma as a church body for the last two years. And likely, I wasn't here, but likely there are still some fractured relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, please understand, I don't know every story, but I do know what Jesus expects from his children. If we've offended, we should do what we can to pursue reconciliation. It may not be welcomed, but we're to live peaceably as far as it depends on us. And that doesn't mean everything goes back the way it was in all the relationships that we have in our lives that get torn. But it means they're reconciled. Is there someone who has something against you that you need to go to? But pastor, you just don't understand. No, I mean, maybe I don't. But I do know this. It takes an incredible degree of humility to admit you're at fault for something. To reconcile even when you're not sure that what you did was worth them being angry at. You're reconciling because whatever you did, maybe in blunder, they're holding it against you and you have to go and tell them, this one's on me. I did that. I know I hurt you. Please forgive me. This stuff's not for wimps, guys. It's hardcore peacemaking. If I ever make an album, that'll be my first album title, Hardcore Peacemaking. Just kidding. God expressed his love for us through Christ. He covered our sins in him. Thus, through faith in Jesus, we're reconciled to God. In that light, surely we should be willing to cover sins done to us by other people. Not that we can forgive sin on God's behalf, but we can do so in our relations to others. And here's the last point, and this is what I want you to hear. If you don't hear anything else I've said, I want you to hear this. The righteousness that Jesus demands can only come from him. 
The righteousness that he demands can only come from him. He is both the source of that righteousness and the one who gives it. He demands it and he gives it. He's the one. That surpassing righteousness that goes past the outer actions and the law-keeping of the scribes and Pharisees, you can't do that on your own. That's the point. Only Jesus, the power of the gospel, can purify our hearts. So as we kind of roll towards the end here, let me, I want you to ask, I'm going to ask you some questions. I want you to ask them of yourself. These may be things you need to write down, you need to maybe go back, re-listen to it later, and, and set with these a while with the Lord. But let's ask ourselves a few questions in the quiet of this moment. Am I responsible for any grudges someone has against me? Am I responsible for any anger someone has against me? Am I responsible for any bitterness someone has against me? Am I responsible for any hostility someone has against me? If you answer yes to any of these, it means you need to take action. It's hypocritical to say you're good and right with God, but in the same time not being good and right with others, especially your brothers and your sisters in Christ. Pursue reconciliation and pursue peace. Sinclair Ferguson would tell us, Jesus is not telling us to hang out our dirty linen in public, but rather to deal urgently and fully with all breakdowns in fellowship before they lead to spiritual assassination. What we're really talking about is whole person righteousness. Not a righteousness that's just of action, but of heart relationship. As we wrap up, I'm going to ask Matt to come back up, and he's going to lead us in another song. But as he's coming up, I want to say this. Only Jesus can give the righteousness that Jesus requires. He's the one who sets us free from the bondages of sin. You see, we're, we're wretched and depraved, sinful from birth. That sin is on us from birth, and, and we justly deserve the wrath of God to be poured out on us for all eternity. Now, if that sounds bad, that's because it is. We're in chains to our sin. But Jesus came to set us free. He gave his life, 100% God, 100% man. And he gave his life on the cross, dying a death in our place as our substitute to pay the price for our sins, to set us free. We don't have to live in the bondage to sin anymore. And he rose from the grave three days later, proving that God accepted that sacrifice as once and for all. So we don't have to live in that bondage to sin. If you've trusted Jesus Christ alone for salvation and the truth of the gospel, then we're no longer slaves to sin. We're, we're not bound to our anger or to a grudge. We have new hearts and new natures and we can perfectly live out new desires. Sorry, not perfectly, imperfectly. Because <laughs> that's the thing, you won't do it perfectly. And you don't have to Listen to me. We get to live out new desires and a new, and out of our new heart. And you won't do it perfectly, but you don't have to do it perfectly because Jesus died for that sin too. It's not just good news. It's exceptional, eternity-shaking, world-changing news that we celebrate this morning. 
if you're sitting there and you're like, Pastor, I've never been set free from my sin, then please come talk to me afterwards. I want to share with you how you can know Jesus personally, how you can spend eternity with him. But I want to share with you how he took your sin and exchanged it for this surpassing righteousness. His right standing for Christ, he gives to you when he takes our sin upon himself. Would you stand up with me and pray? And then we'll sing. God, thank you for uh, this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of the gospel message that, that we don't have to live as slaves to our sin, that we don't have to uh, dwell around like those in darkness, God, but we can live in your light, the truth of the gospel. Help us be a light to Dixon and the communities surrounding. If there are those here who've never met you, they, they don't know what this gospel and this good news and this uh, relationship with Jesus and, and everything that I've been talking about is foreign to them, then God, just give them the boldness to come and, and ask questions. And God, if they're uncomfortable with coming to the pastor, I pray they turn to their friend at church, somebody they know, and ask them. We trust you with our hearts, Jesus. I trust you with mine. Move in us. Help us trust you and take you at your word. In Jesus' name I pray.